This is Dean Hess, Editor of Respiratory Care, here to present the February 2010 podcast. This month, we are pleased to publish the second set of papers from the 44th Journal Conference, Respiratory Care Controversies 2. These papers should prove clinically useful as you explore these clinical questions in your own practice. Sarah will read the abstracts, and I will return with some commentary on the papers. begin with a paper by Sobel and Hess entitled, Are Inhaled Vasodilators Useful in Acute Lung Injury and Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome? In patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, inhaled vasodilator can result in important physiologic benefits such as improved hypoxemia, lower pulmonary arterial pressure, and improved right ventricular function and cardiac output. These effects occur without systemic hemodynamic effects. Inhaled nitric oxide, or INO, and aerosolized prostacyclins are currently the most frequently used inhaled vasodilators. Inhaled prostacyclins are as effective physiologically as INO and cost less. Randomized controlled trials of INO for the treatment of ARDS have shown short-term physiologic benefits, but no benefit in long-term outcomes. No outcome studies have been reported on the use of prostacyclin in patients with ARDS. There is no role for the routine use of inhaled vasodilators in patients with ARDS. Inhaled vasodilator as a rescue therapy for severe refractory hypoxemia in patients with ARDS may be reasonable, but is controversial. Next we have the paper, Are Esophageal Pressure Measurements Important in Clinical Decision Making in Mechanically Ventilated Patients? by Talmor and Fessler. Low tidal volume ventilation strategies are clearly beneficial in patients with acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome, but the optimal level of PEEP is uncertain. In patients with high pleural pressure on conventional ventilator settings, underinflation may lead to atelectasis, hypoxemia, and exacerbation of lung injury through atelectrauma. In such patients, raising PEEP to maintain a positive transpulmonary pressure might improve aeration and oxygenation without causing overdistension. Conversely, in patients with low pleural pressure, maintaining a low PEEP would keep transpulmonary pressure low, avoiding overdistension and consequent volume trauma. Thus, the currently recommended strategy of setting PEEP without regard to transpulmonary pressure is predicted to benefit some patients while harming others. Recently, the use of esophageal manometry to identify the optimal ventilator settings, avoiding both underinflation and overinflation, was proposed. This method shows promise but awaits larger clinical trials to assess its impact on clinical outcomes. Are there benefits or harm from pressure targeting during lung protective ventilation? This paper is by McIntyre and Sessler. Mechanically, breath design is usually either flow volume targeted or pressure targeted. Both approaches can effectively provide lung protective ventilation, but they prioritize different ventilation parameters, so their responses to changing respiratory system mechanics and patient effort are different. These different response behaviors have advantages and disadvantages that can be important in specific circumstances. 
Flow volume targeting guarantees a set minute ventilation, but sometimes may be difficult to synchronize with patient effort, and it will not limit inspiratory pressure. In contrast, pressure targeting with its variable flow may be easier to synchronize and will limit inspiratory pressure, but it provides no control over desired volume. Skilled clinicians can maximize benefits and minimize problems with either flow volume targeting or pressure targeting. Indeed, as is often the case in managing complex life support devices, it is operator expertise rather than the device design features that most impacts patient outcomes. The paper, Are Specialized Endotracheal Tubes and Heat and Moisture Exchangers Cost-Effective in Preventing Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia, is by Gentile and Sobel. Ventilator-associated pneumonia, or VAP, is a common and serious complication of mechanical ventilation via an artificial airway. As with all nosocomial infections, VAP increases costs, morbidity, and mortality in the ICU. VAP prevention is a multifaceted priority of the intensive care team and can include the use of specialized artificial airways and heat and moisture exchangers. Substantial evidence supports the use of endotracheal tubes that allow subglottic suctioning, silver-coated and antiseptic impregnated endotracheal tubes, endotracheal tubes with thin-walled polyurethane cuffs, and heat and moisture exchangers, but these devices can also have adverse effects. Controversy still exists regarding the evidence, cost-effectiveness, and disadvantages and risks of these devices. Should a patient be extubated and placed on non-invasive ventilation after failing a spontaneous breathing trial? This question is addressed by Epstein and Durbin. Between 15 and 35% of mechanically ventilated patients fail an initial spontaneous breathing trial. For these patients, 40% of total time on mechanical ventilation is consumed by the weaning process, 60% for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Longer duration of mechanical ventilation is associated with higher risk of complications and probably with higher mortality. Non-invasive ventilation, NIV, has been used successfully in some forms of acute respiratory failure. Randomized controlled trials have indicated that, in selected patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and acute on-chronic respiratory failure, NIV can facilitate weaning, reduce the duration of invasive mechanical ventilation, decrease complications, and reduce mortality compared to weaning on continued invasive ventilation. However, extubation failure resulting in re-intubation is associated with higher mortality, and this mortality risk increases with delay of re-intubation and may not be prevented by application of NIV. Patients extubated to NIV must have careful monitoring by skilled clinicians able to provide timely re-intubation if the patient shows signs of intolerance or worsening respiratory failure. Finally, we have the paper, Is Humidification Always Necessary During Non-Invasive Ventilation in the Hospital? by Branson and Gentile. Non-invasive ventilation, or NIV, is a standard of care for the treatment of exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease to prevent intubation and reduce morbidity and mortality. The need for humidification of NIV gas is controversial. 
Some unique aspects of NIV conspire to alter the delivered humidity and airway function. In the presence of air leaks, unidirectional airflow dries the airways and increases airway resistance. Patient comfort is also a critical issue, as tolerance of NIV is often tied to patient comfort. This paper provides the arguments for and against routine humidification during NIV in the hospital setting. Data from clinical research demonstrate the effects of delivered humidification on relevant physiologic variables. The impact of humidification on NIV success and failure remains speculative. There is no debate that inhaled vasodilators such as inhaled nitric oxide and prostacyclins can improve hypoxemia, lower pulmonary artery pressure, and improve right ventricular function. Moreover, these effects are largely in the lungs without systemic hemodynamic effects. Hence, these drugs are called selective pulmonary vasodilators. But are inhaled vasodilators useful in ARDS? As pointed out by Sobel and Hess, randomized controlled trials of inhaled nitric oxide in the treatment of ARDS have shown short-term improvements in arterial oxygenation, but no benefit in long-term outcomes. It has been shown that inhaled prostacyclins are as physiologically effective as inhaled nitric oxide and they cost less, but no outcome studies have been reported on the use of prostacyclins in patients with ARDS. The authors conclude that there is no role for the routine use of inhaled vasodilators in patients with ARDS, but their use as a rescue therapy for severe refractory hypoxemia may be reasonable. There should be no debate that low tidal volume ventilation strategies are beneficial in patients with ARDS. What is more controversial is the optimal level of PEEP in this patient population. There has recently been interest in the role of the chest wall in patients with ARDS. Specifically, a high pleural pressure secondary to the effects of a stiff chest wall can result in atelectasis, hypoxemia, and exacerbation of lung injury. The traditional method used to estimate pleural pressure and thus transpulmonary pressure is to measure the esophageal pressure. The question is whether esophageal pressure measurements are important in clinical decision making in mechanically ventilated patients. Talmor and Fessler suggest that the currently recommended strategy of setting PEEP without regard to transpulmonary pressure may benefit some patients while harming others. The use of esophageal pressure measurements to identify the optimal ventilator settings, thus avoiding both underinflation and overinflation, has been proposed. Although this approach shows promise, larger clinical trials to assess its impact on clinical outcomes are needed. The seminal ARDS Network study, published nearly 10 years ago, demonstrated that volume and pressure limitation during mechanical ventilation of patients with acute lung injury, or ARDS, saves lives. The ARDS Network study used volume-controlled ventilation and monitored plateau pressure. However, an issue of much debate is whether pressure-controlled ventilation can be used equally well as a lung-protective ventilatory strategy. In other words, are there benefits or harm from pressure targeting during lung-protective ventilation? As McIntyre and Sessler point out, 
volume-controlled ventilation and pressure-controlled ventilation can both effectively provide lung-protective ventilation, but they prioritize different ventilation parameters. Thus, their responses to changing respiratory system mechanics and patient effort are different. These different responses have advantages and disadvantages that can be important in specific circumstances. As the authors correctly point out, skilled clinicians can maximize benefits and minimize problems with either volume control or pressure control. It is operator expertise rather than the device design features that most impacts patient outcomes. Ventilator-associated pneumonia is receiving much attention because it increases cost, morbidity, and mortality. Gentile and Sobel address the question of whether or not specialized endotracheal tubes and heat and moisture exchangers are cost-effective in preventing ventilator-associated pneumonia. The available evidence supports lower VAP rates with the use of silver-coated and antiseptic-impregnated endotracheal tubes, of endotracheal tubes with thin-walled polyurethane cuffs, and of endotracheal tubes that allow subglottic suctioning. Compared to active humidification, heat and moisture exchangers do not decrease the VAP rate. As the authors correctly conclude, controversy still exists regarding the evidence, cost-effectiveness, and disadvantages and risks of these devices. There is much evidence supporting the use of non-invasive ventilation in appropriately selected patients. But should a patient be extubated and placed on non-invasive ventilation after failing a spontaneous breathing trial? As Epstein and Durbin point out, between 15% and 35% of mechanically ventilated patients fail an initial spontaneous breathing trial. Randomized controlled trials have indicated that in selected patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and acute on chronic respiratory failure, NIV can facilitate weaning, reduce the duration of invasive mechanical ventilation, decrease complications, and reduce mortality compared to weaning on continued invasive ventilation. However, one must keep in mind the fact that extubation failure resulting in reintubation is associated with higher mortality. Furthermore, this mortality risk increases with delay of reintubation and may not be prevented by application of NIV. The authors correctly recommend that patients extubated to NIV be carefully monitored and provided timely intubation if the patient shows signs of intolerance or worsening respiratory failure. Another issue related to non-invasive ventilation is humidification. Specifically, is humidification always necessary during NIV in the hospital? As debated by Branson and Gentile, the need for humidification during NIV is controversial. Patient comfort is a critical issue during the application of NIV, and humidification may improve patient comfort. On the other hand, the humidifying function of the upper airway is intact during NIV. This paper provides the arguments for and against routine humidification during NIV in the hospital setting. Branson provides the conference summary. As he points out, the clinical controversies addressed in this conference are often settled by expert opinion and personal bias. Further research is needed to answer many of the still unanswered important clinical questions in the field of respiratory care. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.